Thanks, Maddie. Not sure if I said who I was before. My name is Tim, and it's a great joy to be with you. I have heard it said that it only takes four generations to lose a doctrine. Uh, the first teaches it, the second assumes it, the third forgets it, and the fourth denies it. Now, I suspect it's probably actually even faster than that uh, today, but it does raise in some ways the importance of teaching Christian doctrine. And so this morning, this might sound a little random to you, but I want to think about the doctrine of the apostles. Now, again, I say that, that might seem slightly strange, particularly if you've never heard the doctrine of the apostles taught before. Although I guess in some ways, maybe that is kind of illustrating the point. Not many of us have had it taught to us. After all, when it comes to our understanding of the apostles, I suspect many of us would be in maybe generation two or maybe generation three. That is, we assume it. We maybe couldn't teach it to someone else, but we just assume it's true. Or maybe we forgot it. We're not really sure why the apostles are important or what particular role they play in the church. Which is an issue because it suggests that maybe our kids or at least our grandkids are in danger of denying it all together and suggesting that actually the apostles have no place in our life today. But it's not just our kids or our grandkids who are vulnerable. I want to suggest if we don't actually just spend a little bit of time thinking through who the apostles were and the role that they played in the church, then what we're actually doing is leaving ourselves vulnerable, both to the arguments of those outside the church, but also to various ideas from inside the church. And so just by way of example, uh, when I was at Sydney University, just down the road, I did an arts degree. This was before I went to Bible college, and I majored in biblical studies. Now, when I enrolled in that subject, I was pretty sure it was going to be a Christian subject. Uh, it didn't take very long for my lecturers to put me in my place and realize, oh, no, this is not a Christian subject at all. Uh, same went for my studies of religion subjects and my philosophy classes as well. But that was fairly confronting for me. I'd grown up in a Christian family. Uh, I believed that the Bible was the Word of God and that the New Testament written by the apostles was trustworthy. And yet here I was for the first time really in a context where there were incredibly intelligent people tearing to pieces what I had staked in many ways my life upon. And so they would ask questions like, what do you mean you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? You know, so what? It was written by Jesus' apostles, you know, the New Testament. They're just men. They're fallible human beings. Just compare the, the, the stories. Look at the differences. Or, or they'd say things like, really? You actually, you, you think that what Paul taught was the same as what Jesus taught? No, 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 no. He called himself an apostle, but he distorted the simple teaching of love and acceptance of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I have since learnt that there's all sorts of uh, robust, and at least as far as I'm concerned, uh, convincing responses to all those kinds of critiques. But certainly at the time, it was all pretty confronting for me. Uh, in many ways, I, I kind of wish that my church had given me a, a bit of a better foundation to understand, okay, who are the apostles? What role do they play? And how do I engage with this? So there's kind of a threat outside the church if we don't think of it. I also want to suggest uh, there's... There's teaching inside the church that we need to be aware of as well. 
Uh, and so I'm going to show you a quote, or two quotes actually. It's by a guy named C. Peter Wagner. And just so you know, this is not like some 15-year-old with a blog. Uh, okay, he, he's a respected professor. He, for 30 years, was a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary in California. And he was actually widely considered to be the leading expert in the church growth movement until he died in 2016. So this is a, an influential guy in the world of Christianity today. This is what he writes. He says, the new apostolic reformation is an extraordinary work of God that began at the close of the 20th century and continues on. It is, to a significant extent, changing the shape of the Protestant world. There is now widespread recognition that the office of apostleship was not just a phenomenon of the first couple centuries of church history, but that it is also functioning in the body of Christ today. Now, depending on your church background, you may be more or less comfortable with the concept of apostles today. Uh, after all, I'm very aware that certain charismatic and Pentecostal churches sometimes refer to particularly influential leaders in their movement as apostles. And, you know, just showing my hand, while I do think that is unwise and often confusing, I'm also very aware that those who do that often aren't claiming to be apostles on the same level as the apostles in the Bible. The thing is that that's not always the way the terminology is used. And again, uh, in the case of Peter Wagner, he goes on to define an apostle like this. He says, an apostle is a Christian leader who is gifted, taught and commissioned by God with the authority to establish the foundational government of the church within an assigned sphere of ministry by hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches and by setting things in order accordingly for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, I hope that raises some questions for us. Questions like, oh, okay, is that what an apostle is? And if it is, is there anyone alive today that fits that description? And what's more, if there is anyone, how are we to relate to them? Because Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so that's a big claim. Well, again, uh, if we're not clear on our understanding and doctrine of the apostles, then we're maybe not really going to be able to answer those sorts of questions. And so with that in mind, today I want to speak on the five marks of an apostle. Now, the main place that we're going to be camped out in is the first six verses of Luke chapter 9. You'll notice as it was read out, it's kind of got the commissioning of the apostles, but then also the feeding of the 5,000. On about Thursday, I scrapped the whole feeding of the 5,000 bit and was like, I can't get a coherent talk out of these two different things. So we're just zeroing in. We're focusing in on verses 1 to 6, not the whole thing because that's where we're going to get our stuff from this morning. We'll deal with the 5,000 another day. But if you've got a Bible, uh, get it open for in front of you, Luke chapter 9, and we're thinking through the five marks of an apostle. Let's jump in. Uh, chapter uh, 9, verse 1. Mark number 1, an apostle is commissioned by Jesus. An apostle is commissioned by Jesus. So our chapter begins when Jesus had called the 12 together. Now, if you've been around church, frankly, even if you haven't, you'll probably know that the 12 there is a reference not just to Jesus' disciples, 
but to 12 specific disciples that he has actually set aside as apostles. If you have your Bible in front of you, you'll actually notice that Paul, uh, sorry, Luke specifically uses the word apostles down in verse 10, but we won't read it now. Now, he has commissioned, he has set aside these apostles earlier in Luke's gospel. I'll just bring it up for you now. It's from Luke chapter 6, verse 12 and 14. We read, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And then when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Notice the two usages of the words, right? We have disciples and we have an apostle, apostles. Disciples, what's the difference? Well, part of that is, is what this talk is going to be about, but in, in part you, you get an answer from uh, the root meaning of the word. So the word for disciple is mathetes, it means kind of follower or student or learner. And so in one sense you could say that Jesus had lots of disciples because he had lots of followers and, and in some ways it was up to the disciple to follow him and to learn and to sit at his feet. But he only had 12, we'll, we'll come to that later, he selects here 12 apostles. So what does apostle mean? Well, apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos, which means sent one. And it was often used in an official capacity to speak of a superior, like you know, a general or a king, sending someone out with his authority. And so just kind of to state the obvious, if maybe disciple is up to us, apostle is up to the ones sending them, because they're actually commissioned and sent with their authority. Now, appreciate this is probably all relatively straightforward in some ways so far, but I think it is helpful just to remember. So, for example, uh, this week on YouTube, I watched an interview with Bill Johnson. Uh, Bill Johnson is from Bethel Church. That name will mean a lot to some of you and nothing to others. That's okay. But the question that was being explored was, is Bill Johnson an apostle? And it was interesting, throughout the interview, uh, the assumption was that he was, and he certainly never denied it. But he did say, you know, I, I kind of feel uncomfortable when people call me Apostle Bill. However, he went on to say that uh, if it makes other people feel comfortable, then he's okay to do it because really they're just trying to show him honor and respect and so he's okay if they do it. Now, that kind of sounds humble, but the more you think about it, the more problematic it gets. Why? Well, because only Jesus is the one who can name his apostles. If you really want to honor someone, if you want to show respect to someone, uh, then don't call them pastor, don't, sorry, don't call them apostle. Call them elder, call them pastor, call them bishop. Don't call them apostle, though, because Jesus is the one who commissions his apostles. He decides, not us. So there's the first one. Second mark of an apostle is that an apostle has Jesus' power and authority. An apostle has Jesus' power and authority. Look with me. We're going to keep going in verses 1 and 2. It says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Now, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you will know that we've seen Jesus demonstrating his power and authority over pretty much every area of life. And so he's demonstrated over nature as he's calmed a storm, evil spirits as he's cast out demons, over disease as he's healed a bleeding woman, and even over death as he raised a dead girl. But this is the first time 
that he actually shares that power and authority with his 12 apostles, right? If they were at police officer training, they've been in the ancient equivalent of the classroom for the last however long. This is the first time they're sent on the field and they're given a gun and a badge, right? They've got the power and the authority to use it. And my goodness, what power and authority they were given. Just read it again. Power and authority to drive out demons, power and authority to cure diseases. But suppose you ask, like, what exactly did that look like? If you were there, what did it look like? So, for example, last week we spoke about praying for miracles. Is it kind of like that? Now, last week we spoke of trusting that God is able to heal and can and does heal. And so we pray, God, would you help? And if it, would you heal? And, and if it's your will, God will do it. Is that kind of what it looks like here, just praying and trusting? Well, no, the clear implication is that Jesus has actually given them, his apostles, the exact same kind of power and authority that he has been demonstrating for the last couple of chapters. And so you actually get a really good example of this in the early chapters of Acts. Uh, Some of you who are familiar with the book of Acts will know the story well. Uh, Jesus has died, he's been raised to life, he's ascended into heaven. And then Peter and John are walking into the temple And as they do, they meet this guy who's born lame from birth. He's never walked and he begs them for money. Hey, have you got anything to spare? And Peter says, look, I don't have any money, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I'll give you. And then he heals a guy who's been born lame. And he just walks off leaping and praising, leaping and jumping and praising God as the song goes. But notice what happens, I'm going to bring up a verse for you, when the Jewish authorities hear about it. They say they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. And they asked their question, by what power or what name did you do this? Right? What power and what authority? How? The response, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. What power or name? What power or authority? Well, it's Jesus Christ. And you can trace their power and authority the day that it was given to them right back to here, Luke chapter 9. So again, I, I want to say before you go believing the claims of someone who says, hey, I'm an apostle today, or oh, there's a new apostle in so-and-so movement, say, mm. well, let's ask ourselves the question. Have they demonstrated the power and authority of Jesus? And we're not talking here about praying for a miracle and God answering a prayer. We're talking about this kind of Jesus, New Testament kind of healing, where deaf people hear, where lame people walk, where dead people rise back from life. There's a big difference between a real apostle and a self-professed apostle. It's worth saying as well... uh, False pretenders is not a new phenomenon. And so just let me pull this up for you. It's, it's the Apostle Paul. We'll think a little bit about him later. But the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 11 to 12, he's actually defending his apostleship to this church because they're kind of questioning it. And he says, look, I've made a fool of myself, as in he's kind of amped up his qualifications. He says, I made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. For I'm not in the least inferior to these, and then kind of in brackets, super apostles, again, false apostles really, even though I am nothing. 
And listen to this. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle. What are they? Including signs, wonders, and miracles. Even in Paul's day, people were claiming to be apostles. And yet the way that Paul distinguishes himself, among other things, but at least this, from the false ones, is that, hey, I have the true signs of an apostle. Miracles, signs, wonders. As we'll see, that's not the only mark of an apostle. There's five, uh, but they're certainly one of them because an apostle is given the power and authority of Jesus. So number one, called by Jesus. Number two, power and authority of Jesus. Number three, an apostle's message is Jesus' message. An apostle's message is Jesus' message. Let's finish reading. We'll get a little faster from now on. Luke 9, 1 to 2 says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So he commissions them, he empowers them, and then he sends them to preach a particular message. What was it? What's the, the kingdom of God? Now we're going to come back and say, what exactly is the kingdom of God? We'll think about that. But I just want you to notice uh, something that we read maybe two or three verses later on. We read, Then Jesus took them, that is the apostles, with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Right? Notice the similarities. The message of the apostles was the message of Jesus. He sends them off to talk about the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom. So what exactly is the kingdom? What is this message that the apostles were commissioned to proclaim? Well, during Jesus' earthly ministry, the main message of the kingdom was that the kingdom was at hand. In other words, it was almost here. Why? Well, in part because the king had just arrived. That's Jesus. And so as he's doing his ministry, he tells parables of the kingdom. You know, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who goes out and sows a seed. It's, it's like a mustard seed and it grows. So he's telling parables of the kingdom so that people know, wow, it's, it's kind of almost here. But then he also demonstrates his authority as the king and in particular authority over Satan's kingdom by forgiving sin, casting out demons and healing the sick. The thing is, the apostles, at this stage in their ministry, they're thinking the kingdom is about to come. They're thinking it's probably a matter of years, maybe even months, before this thing arrives and evil is no more. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, he sends out the apostles as his witnesses into the whole world with a slightly nuanced message. And the message is, the kingdom has both come... And it's also still to come. It's come because the decisive victory has been won. That is, God's king has triumphed over Satan, sin and death, and he's done it at the cross and resurrection. But also it's still to come. And we await the full inbringing of the kingdom, where there is no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death, no more disease until the second coming of Christ. And so the message of the first apostles as they go out into the world after the resurrection becomes, God has exalted his king. He is at the right hand of the Father. And he will come back to establish his kingdom. But now you can enter that kingdom by faith. So repent of sin 
and then live as a citizen of this otherworldly kingdom while you wait for his return. That's the message of the apostles. It's also the message of Jesus. Now, at this point, again, maybe you wouldn't have put it like that, but that's probably not particularly new to most of us. Certainly, if, you, uh, have, if you're new to church today, then that'll be new for you, I suspect. But for many of us who are familiar with the Bible, it won't be all that new. But sometimes, sometimes it's helpful to, to, to highlight what you do mean by contrasting it with what you don't. And so again, just to put teeth on what we're talking about here, let's contrast it with what is sometimes called the gospel of the kingdom by those in the New Apostolic Reformation movement. Because it's interesting, uh, many in that movement will say something like, okay, Tim, what you just described there, that's that's good. That that is the gospel of salvation. And so it's absolutely central and important, but it's kind of incomplete. There's also this thing called the gospel of the kingdom, which is a little different. And the gospel of the kingdom is that God's people under the leadership of the modern-day apostle, needs to seek to influence and sometimes control, I'll come to that, society. And sometimes, now this will be brand new for a bunch of you, but I've had conversations with others of you who've used this exact language, so you know what I'm talking about. But often this, this, uh, these ideas are expressed under the language of the Seven Mountains Mandate. And the Seven Mountains Mandate is basically a thing that teaches that Christians really need to influence the seven key areas of society. Things like education, religion, family, business, government, arts, media. Now, as an evangelistic strategy, I don't have all that much problem with that way of thinking. Who wouldn't want lovely, God-fearing Christians, servant-hearted people, functioning as salt and light in every area of society. That, that sounds like a great idea. But there are also some things to be aware of. To begin with, that's not the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, Jesus never really taught, hey, there's these seven areas. The Bible doesn't teach. There's these seven areas that Christians must enter in order to really take over. Now, the first Christians were not influencers. They were, in the language of Paul, the scum of the earth. Second of all, at its worst, the Seven Mountains Mandate can drift into something called dominion theology, which really teaches not that Christians should seek to influence society, but should actually seek to control society, and particularly these seven areas. And so again, at its worst, this is where something like Christian nationalism comes from. Not all Christian nationalists will be dominionists, but, sorry, other way around, not all dominionists will be Christian nationalists, Uh, but often they will be. Anyway, as I say, the the point of doing that is just to say, okay, this is is what the gospel of the kingdom is, and this is sometimes something that parades as the gospel of the kingdom. But the message of Jesus is the message of the apostles. So if you come from a church that's used that language, I want to encourage you, just be careful to distinguish between an evangelistic strategy, which might be useful but isn't the gospel, and the message of Jesus, which is a matter of eternal significance. Fourth, to reject an apostle is to reject Jesus. To reject an apostle is to reject Jesus. Look with me at Luke 9. It says, He told them, Take nothing for the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. 
If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, just as an aside, that bit there about not taking anything with you, you know, no bag, no staff, that's not a mandate or a blueprint for missionary journeys, either theirs or modern-day ones today. And I say that because if you go and look up Luke 22, you'll see Jesus tells them there, hey, if you've got a purse, take it. If you've got a bag, take it. If you don't have a sword, sell a cloak and buy a sword because you're going to need that on the journey. And so again, it's not a blueprint. The point actually seems to be more about teaching them a lesson in dependence upon God, which is actually a lesson they're going to need to continue learning on and on and on again. And frankly, we all do. And you actually see that demonstrated in the feeding of the 5,000 because Jesus says to them, hey, guys, you feed them. And they're like, how are we going to do that? And it's like, guys, just rely on Jesus. He'll give the bread. So it's a lesson in dependence. But the main point to focus on is that the Mosaic law was big on the principle of hospitality. It's big on the principle of hospitality. And so often when you're reading the Old Testament, you'll kind of read of someone entering a town or a village and they'll hang out at the city gate and then someone from the town just invites this stranger into their home. And Paul, sorry, Luke is saying, hey, that's how I want it to be with you guys. When you enter a town and someone invites you in, um, enjoy and experience the hospitality of that family. Don't, don't shop around looking for a better bed or better food. Embrace the family that embraces you. But now's the thing to, I want you to draw your attention to. Because notice how he finishes. He says, if people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. To shake the feet, sorry, the dust off your feet is an idiom that most of us are probably relatively familiar with, but in that day, uh, many of the particularly zealous Jews would shake the dust off their feet when returning back into Israel after traveling in some distant land. So if they'd kind of gone off on holiday or business or whatever, as they were returning back into the promised land, they would dust the, sorry, yeah, get the dust off their shoes so as not to bring the unclean dust of the pagan world into the clean land of the promised land. So if you're looking for an example, it's like New Zealand. You know how when you try to enter New Zealand, is anyone with me on this? You go into New Zealand, the border patrol like check your shoes and they don't want the unclean stuff from the pagan nations around them. Come on. Just trying to keep it light. <laughs> it's significant, though, that Jesus tells them to do this within Israel. Because he's not sending them off to the pagan nations around them. Almost certainly, he's sending them off to the towns and villages within Galilee. And yet he's telling them, hey, if people reject you and your message, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, you get a slightly expanded version of this in Matthew's account, so I just want to quickly draw your attention to it because it kind of shows you how serious this gesture was. Matthew 10, 14 to 15, he says, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Now listen, truly I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. If you've never heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, God literally rains down sulfur, burning sulfur on them in Genesis 19. 
And yet Jesus says, hey, apostles, New Testament guys, when you go into the villages and towns of Israel, if someone doesn't accept your message, then on the day of judgment, they are going to wish that they'd grown up in Sodom and Gomorrah rather than this town of the promised land in Israel. Now, in case it's not clear, that's a pretty big call. In fact, you, you might even want to ask why. Like, I mean, it's, it's clear why you would do that if they were rejecting Jesus, maybe. Like, he's the son of God, okay? I can sort of understand that. But to reject the apostles, like, they're just, they're just humans, aren't they? Not the son of God. This is where we need to appreciate the difference between being a disciple and apostle. Remember, an apostle is called and commissioned and then sent with the power and authority of Jesus to speak Jesus' message. And therefore, to reject an apostle is to reject Jesus. Just think about the implications of that for a moment. Some people today will say things like, oh yeah, like I like Jesus, but I don't like the teaching of the apostles, especially Peter and Paul, those guys are misogynistic, they're, you know... Uh, They're legalistic, so I'm just going to stick with Jesus. Now, in a previous century, there there was a whole um, intellectual movement devoted to this way of thinking. You see it a bit in the Jesus Seminar as well as elsewhere. You see it today, though, in in kind of the spiritual but not religious movement, the the movement that says, look, I like Jesus, I just don't like his church. And in some ways, I get it. Because people in the church are imperfect. And tragically... There are leaders in the church who've done tremendous damage. But at the end of the day, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And so if we want to carry on in the line of the early church, that post-Pentecost church, what does it look like? It means to devote yourself to the apostles' teaching. Uh, Even Paul in Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so to reject the apostles is to reject Jesus, but to receive the words of the apostles is to receive Jesus. And so that's why so much of our church, our time together, is spent devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Fifth and finally, fifth and finally, an apostle has seen the risen Jesus. An apostle has seen the risen Jesus. Now, just for the sake of full disclosure... I am going to have to go outside of Luke chapter 9, 1 to 6 for this one. Uh, It's because it doesn't give it to us. But if I didn't, our marks of the apostle would be woefully inadequate. So we've got to go elsewhere. So come with me to uh, Acts chapter 1. Many of you will know that Judas was one of the 12 apostles uh, chosen and commissioned actually here by Jesus. But then he betrays Jesus and so commits suicide. And so one of the first challenges for the early church is going, oh, how do we get back to 12? How, who is this 12th apostle who's going to replace Judas? And so Peter and the early church are kind of discussing this. It's in the early chapters, first chapter of Acts. And listen to what uh, Peter says about the candidate. He says, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Right? Notice, to even qualify as a candidate, they had to have been an eyewitness to the resurrection. Why? 
why is actually seeing the risen Jesus with their own eyes, why was that so important? It was because the central message of the early church, the apostles, became the cross combined with the resurrection, or resurrection combined with the cross. That, that was the whole message. And so they would call on people, hey, God's king has been raised to life. He's ascended to God's right hand. Trust me, I saw him. You can trust me. I saw him. I was an eyewitness. And now he calls on you to repent, to trust on him, to live in, as a citizen of his kingdom while we wait for his return. And so being an eyewitness was critical to the role of the first apostles. Uh, if you want to look it up later, Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians 9.1. He says, am I not also an apostle? Have I not also seen our Lord? Again, the point is just that to qualify as an apostle, you have to have seen the resurrected Jesus. And so with that in mind, I want you to come back and we're going to review that first quote by C. Peter Wagner, or the second one, sorry. Remember, this was his definition of an apostle. An apostle is a Christian leader who is gifted, taught, and commissioned by God with the authority to establish the foundational government of the church within an assigned sphere of ministry by hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches and by setting things in order accordingly for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Now, if I had to come up with a definition of apostle, I wouldn't use that one. But if I close one eye and I sort of squint, maybe, just maybe, I could sort of say, yeah, okay, that's probably true. All of those things are true of an apostle. The problem, therefore, is less about what they do say, or what the definition does say, and more about what it doesn't say. Because notice there's nothing in there about being an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. And yet, according to both Peter and Paul, that was a necessary prerequisite to even being considered. So there you have it. Five marks of an apostle. An apostle is number one, commissioned by Jesus. Number two, has Jesus' power and authority. Number three, the apostle's message is Jesus' message. Number four, to reject an apostle is to reject Jesus. And number five, an apostle has seen the reason Jesus. Now, I'm happy to admit that there will be people alive today who could tick one, two, maybe more of those boxes. That's fine with me. But no one can tick all five. And so to call someone an apostle today not only minimizes the unique and unrepeatable nature of who the apostles were in church history, it also opens the door to all sorts of confusion and manipulation in the church today. After all, when someone claims to be an apostle, they are claiming for themselves an incredible amount of power and authority. And while I'm not going to suggest that everyone who claims to be an apostle misuses that power, my goodness, they're leaving the door open. After all, who are we to question the word of an apostle? I'm not going to question the word of an apostle. They've been sent by Jesus with his authority. So we've got to make sure that we're recognizing the true apostles and disregarding the false ones. So I'll say it again. If you want to honor someone, call them a pastor, call them an elder, a reverend, maybe even a bishop, but don't call them an apostle. It's not only pastorally unwise, it confuses the nature of apostolic teaching and the foundational role that it plays in the church. Now I'm going to close, and as I do, I just want to quickly answer one objection, because uh, I know that this will be spinning around in your head if you've done some thinking on this. 
But you might say to something like, hey, Tim, you've kind of misunderstood the movement. You've misunderstood the way we understand it because there is a difference between the office of apostleship and the gift of apostleship. Yeah, we all agree that the office of apostleship, right, the 12, that's come to an end. But the gift of apostleship continues. Uh, so those who say something like that, maybe, maybe that's you, will usually draw attention and say, look, we get it. Uh, there were the 12 apostles kind of patterned after the 12 tribes of Israel. You even get in the book of Revelation, the 12, names of the 12 tribes are written on the foundations of the heavenly city. So we're not trying to add to the 12. That's the office. But the gift, the gift of apostleship continues today. After all, look at people like Paul. Look at people like James. Look at people like Barnabas. All three of those are named apostles in the New Testament, but they're not part of the 12. So again, we believe in the office and the gift. Now, if you want to go down that road, you still have the issue of the five marks we've just identified, particularly given that Paul explicitly mentions two of them. Right? Paul is the one who talks about, hey, aren't I an apostle? I've seen the resurrected Jesus. And the other one, hey, I demonstrated among you the signs of an apostle, things like signs, wonders, miracles. And so he says those two things are marks of an apostle. So even if you want to say the gift continues, I don't know of anyone in the world today that can tick both of those boxes. And so again, I want to encourage us, Grace City, rather than looking for modern-day apostles, let's instead give thanks to God for the apostles of the past and then devote ourselves to their teaching as God continues to build us into a dwelling in which he lives. And so I want to finish by quoting to you from Ephesians. I've referenced this a few times throughout. He says, you, he's speaking here to a group of non-Jews, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let us not be the church or the generation that stops teaching it and instead starts assuming, forgetting or even denying it. The apostles play a foundational role in God's church and we want to devote ourselves to their teaching as God continues to build us into a temple in which his spirit dwells. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of your son, Jesus Christ, the message that he preached, and for the commissioning of his apostles who went and carried that message beyond the borders of Palestine into the world as we know it. We thank you for the New Testament that we have the word of the apostles here and help us, Lord, to study it, to devote ourselves to it and then ultimately to live as citizens of your kingdom as we wait for the returning of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.